Hey, everyone, it's Aaron. So his next episode is with Gary Nell. He's CEO of Nat Geo Partners. Before that, he had spent a couple decades at Sesame Street. He also ran National Public Radio, so I couldn't help but nerd out on him a little bit. In this era of COVID-19, I also want to let you know that on April 6th, they launched something called Nat Geo at Home. It's a site that's free to keep kids busy. They've got a lot of boredom buster type games and videos and live daily talks. It's really a combo effort between National Geographic Kids and Nat Geo Society. So kudos to them for doing that and also putting this COVID-19 resource center online. Enjoy the show. Broadcasting from the 10 Hudson Square building, home of WNYC Radio in Soho, New York, welcome to Brand on Purpose, the podcast dedicated to uncovering the untold stories behind the most impactful purpose-driven companies. My guest today is Gary Nell. Gary is chairman of National Geographic Partners, the for-profit branch of National Geographic Society that monitors all of the company's storytelling assets. Until 2018, Gary is president and CEO of National Geographic Society, one of the largest nonprofit scientific and educational organizations in the world, where he oversaw projects dedicated to exploring and protecting the planet. Before joining National Geographic, Gary held the position of president and CEO of National Public Radio, and he previously worked at Sesame Workshop for more than 20 years, 12 of those years as CEO. Gary, welcome to Brand on Purpose. Thanks for having me. Well, it's amazing having you because I'm a super duper NPR and public radio nerd. And of course, love Sesame Workshop. So we'll get into that as well. But why don't we start with you just explaining to our listeners the differences between National Geographic Society and National Geographic Partners? Sure. Well, the National Geographic Society, Aaron, has been around since 1888. It's over 130 years old. Alexander Graham Bell was the second president. It was really founded to help Americans at the time understand the broader world, the world and all that's in it as an organization that did science, exploration, and storytelling. And in 2015, we created National Geographic Partners, which was really a way of turbocharging the not-for-profit society with more funds and also connecting the dots on the media side so we could combine our pre-existing television assets with our publishing assets and put those integrated and scaled up together. So we have two organizations under the NatGeo brand, the not-for-profit, which is a bit more traditional in grant-making and education, And then the partners, which is really a media company today, joint venture between the Walt Disney Company and the society. And what made you personally decide to make that switch? Well, you mean to jump over to the partners? Well, my background, as you pointed out, has been primarily running media organizations, let's say purpose-driven media organizations like Sesame and NPR. So I'd had a lot of experience in television, in journalism and in global programming. So it was very much in my wheelhouse, almost more than being someone who drives a more traditional philanthropic grant-making foundation, if you will, which is what the society is today. And I just have to ask this question because I'm sure a lot of people would want me to ask this, but what was it like being at Sesame Workshop? You spent two decades there. I mean, so iconic so potent, so powerful, and it's been part, not just culture, but education. I mean, it's been part of many people's lives, um, yours truly. What was that like? 
Well, it's a fabulous experience. They celebrated their 50th anniversary this year. It's quite remarkable. It's won more Emmys than any show in television history. It really changed the culture in many ways and used the power of television to be an educator for generations of kids, as you pointed out, in the U.S. and beyond. And what I was most excited about, Aaron, was taking it internationally into into areas of need. So if you thought about the U.S. show starting in the late 60s as part of the civil rights movement and teaching kids who were not exposed to school to be better prepared for school by using television to teach letters and numbers and social and emotional lessons. We were able to go into places like South Africa and deal, have an HIV positive Muppet at a time when one in nine kids were infected with HIV as a way of promoting empathy for those children or working in malaria, fighting malaria in Tanzania or working in conflict resolution zones, including, believe it or not, Israelis and Palestinians or in the Balkans or Northern Ireland. So it really became a tool of international development in many ways and supported in a nonpartisan way by many people in this country, many presidents and first ladies and also around the world from China to India to South Africa and Japan. I mean, it really, it's the most widely distributed, we used to say the longest street in the world, right? And I think having been lucky enough to work there and then run that organization for a considerable amount of time was a tremendous privilege and one I'll never forget. Do you feel really as a media guy, like you said, but a purpose-driven media guy, do you feel like public broadcasting and public broadcasters have a little bit more air cover to be able to tackle serious issues? And if so or not, how do for-profit media companies tackle those same issues without being polarizing or being accused of going too far? I think that's evolved even in the last decade as certainly the for-profit news organizations have become, as you said, more polarized and really preaching to tribalism on the left and the right that, in my opinion, doesn't particularly advance the cause of human understanding on a daily basis through real news and journalism. I mean, what we really have now is talk radio on television uh, across the board. And and I don't think that serves our country well, and I don't think it serves the interests of the globe and the planet very well. So public broadcasting, theoretically, has a much better chance to take the high road. Um, they, of course, are often starved for funding compared to their commercial counterparts. And that's something that we really haven't leaned into as a society very well. And we'll see how it all plays out. But I think this is a real, it's a moving target as social media dominates so much of our information flow every day. The rules are changing every single day. And it's super important that we, we remain diligent about strong independent journalism that will survive and promote our values as a democracy. I even feel like the rules have even gone by the wayside in certain instances, sadly. So that actually brings us back, I think, very appropriately to partners and society, putting National Geographic partners and National Geographic Society in this hybridized kind of partnership. 
it sounds like there's a lot of value to that. So you have maybe more than a quarter of the proceeds on the for-profit side in your partnership with Disney going to the society. How does that work? And then also, how are you determining the content that you're in the storytelling and the assets that you're developing that you think will best serve the needs of your audiences and at the same time also help to fund and fuel the society? Because that is a major focus. For sure. We're fundamentally in three businesses, I would say. One is the television, the long-form storytelling business. And what we've been able to do here is create Oscar-winning, Emmy-winning programming that is really making an impact, like Free Solo and Cosmos and Genius and The Right Stuff and other shows that are coming up on National Geographic. And having the ability to drive those through linear television, if you will, on cable and satellite, and now through the streaming potential of Disney Plus and Hulu, we have a tremendous ability to make a bigger impact in the future and are in an enviable position, I think, compared to others by having that tile on Disney Plus promoting National Geographic alongside these incredible brands like Marvel and Pixar and Lucasfilm and Disney. So television is a great place. I think publishing and journalism is something we are very much committed to. Our magazine is up for many national magazine awards. We are continuing to be the home for the greatest photography in the world, infographics, mapping, etc. And National Geographic has been the iconic brand around that for a century now. We believe that having the ability now to move more actively into digital media and our huge success in social media, especially Instagram, we're the largest Instagram brand in the world with, with 132 million followers. We just passed Taylor Swift and two of the three Kardashians. So I'm hoping that you'll be able to promote this podcast using your Instagram handle then. Yes, we'll work on that. <laughs> and then, of course, the other lines of business that we're in, in the travel business, in book publishing live events and consumer products, we expect large brand deposits there, if you will, going forward, which will really help National Geographic grow to be even more of an iconic name in this century than it was in the last one. So you have this rise of obviously more ways to be able to listen, engage, or watch, like you said, whether it's through linear, analog, or digital social platforms. And you have these powerful brands and you also have this, I think it's like a rebirth or a rise of interest in all things documentary. Can you talk a little bit about that as well and how that could also boost your presence and your asset development and your distribution? Yeah, for sure. Just started National Geographic Documentary Films just less than a handful of years ago. And our success rate has been remarkable. We have an incredibly talented team led by Courtney Monroe and Carol Bernstein and Ryan Harrington, who are veterans of television and film. And they have been able to now work with filmmakers to create things like Jane, the Jane Goodall doc that was hugely awarded an amazing film that came out a couple of years ago. Free Solo, as I mentioned, this past year, we had The Cave, which was also nominated for an Oscar. So two years in a row nominated for an Academy Award. You can kind of get used to going to those every year, but you shouldn't. And then just a whole number of short subjects and 
and other things that we are putting out there. We've just acquired a really interesting documentary at Sundance called Sabi Runaway, which will be part of Nat Geo documentary films later this year. And we're just super excited about filmmakers who want an association with our brand and we can provide a platform for them that can then get translated across our other platforms, which is something that some of our competitors don't really have. So the fact that we are in all these different media platforms is an advantage that we want to use to expand the voice for these documentarians. And what are your goals? So how are you measuring your success? Um, In addition to obviously fueling not just awareness around very important issues, but also funding for the society. At the end of the year, when you look back, what are you going to look back at and say, we're most proud of this because of that, and this is what we hope to accomplish and we did? Yeah, look, I've always voiced, Aaron, that you want to be measured by a quantitative success, of course, but a qualitative success, which is just as important. And maybe that is what was drummed into my head by Joan Hansconi and other Sesame Workshop. I think you've got to make sure that we're not just producing programs that people watch and 10 minutes later they can't remember. We want to be able to have impactful programs that have an emotional attachment that, or journalism that is making a big difference. I mean, our editor Susan Goldberg has done some remarkable work just this next month's issue on on. Earth Day's 50th anniversary, what we've done is created this concept that looking forward 50 years from now, how we saved our planet is on one side of the magazine. And when you flip it over, it's how we lost our planet. So it's actually projecting out 50 years that we did these incredible things or we didn't and what the world will look like 50 years from now. That's the power that we can have. And we hope that these kinds of storytelling objectives are carried out to trigger conversations across the country and the world and at home. And I think that's a really important part. We want to be, you know, I talked to Bob Iger about this very subject the other day about what is success. And he said to me, being part of the conversation. And I think that's a very important part of the world today. And with so much media coming at us, fire hose in our pockets every minute of the day, how does National Geographic become part of the conversation to make sure that it's relevant for people who were born in the year 2000, not just people who were born in 1950? And I think that's what we need to do. I love that. I often get made fun of by my friends and family in general, but specifically whenever I start a sentence that said, I was listening to NPR the other day, and then I would go on and on. And I think what you want to accomplish here is, I was watching a special on Nat Geo, or this Nat Geo documentary, or whatever it is, and I don't, I don't know if you want us to say Nat Geo or whatever it is, but you want to be associated with something that is important, part of the cultural zeitgeist, part of what's happening now, and hopefully some sort of action or reaction that's coming from it, right? Yeah, Exactly. Nat Geo has one of the most impressive trust factors of any brand in the world. It is universally recognized. It has incredible trust among people through all walks of life. I often say you can go to a 
a foreign country and you can meet with the queen or a baggage handler at the airport and they're both familiar with National Geographic. And how many brands can you say are in that category? It also means we have to live up to a standard of excellence that was hard and sometimes more expensive to do than someone else who's kind of slapping things together and posting them online. We have a standard of excellence that I hope our readership and our viewers expect from us and will continue to hold us accountable for. Yeah, it's interesting to me because you're a very well-known brand, whether it's the nonprofit or the for-profit. And like you said, it you don't want to necessarily be associated with just the Nat Geo from the 50s. But at the same time, I also feel like it's a very humble brand. So you have to walk this fine line between maintaining your humbleness and everything you do for the duty and in service of the brand and your constituents, but at the same time, like either forgot or didn't know that you were behind Free Solo. So that's probably a little bit of a challenge because you also need to kind of get the word out about this new partnership and what it means and what you're doing. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. I mean, I think like everyone else, cutting through the clutter and making sure that people are attributing your brand to your work is something we've got to do better on. And I have to say, the Walt Disney Company kind of invented that, and they are the best at this of any organization I've ever seen. So having them teaching us some learning lessons about branding and connecting the dots so that you will always think Free Solo comes from National Geographic is exactly what we need to lean into and do better. And do you feel like also approaching more, maybe it's controversial, I don't know if that's the right word, but controversial issues or stories and being also part of the news flow is somewhat helpful as well, even if it's not intentional. Like I think back to the whole, the Colin O'Brady situation. I think it's good to be part of the news. I think it's good to be challenged. It's also good to be right. And it's also good to be part of conversation, like you said before. Yes, do all of the above. Look. Susan Goldberg, our editor, has very much leaned into relevance as her driving force. And she likes to say relevance over reverence. And I think that that's really what we need to continue to do. I think it's also a fine line, Aaron, between being in the news and being a commodity. So we don't want to just cover every single thing that everyone else can learn about coronavirus but we need to cover those things that are unique to the science and the expertise that National Geographic has about to put the coronavirus in a context, perhaps even going back to 1918 and the Spanish flu, so people can understand where in the continuum of health care does this fall into. And that's what people look to National Geographic for. I think they look for context more than just news-breaking capabilities, which other people are going to do a much better job at. So to put you on the spot just for a second, but as somebody who has so many years in media, and I think one of the best understandings of how a news operation works, especially a news operation that's beyond influence, how do you think the media are handling the coronavirus outbreak as of today? And I know you're not supposed to date podcasts because it never runs the day that you're recording, but I think it's important in this situation. So today's March 6th. We're kind of in the middle of it right now. Everything is coronavirus or COVID-19. I think the media is trying its best. It's an interesting, we'll look back on this period and probably be able to Monday morning quarterback a lot of this coverage. I think what we're seeing is a bit of a 
struggle between the immediacy of social media and spreading messages, whether they're true or not, with the reality of public health officials who are trying to create this balancing act of precaution and not panic. And the social media world is all about panic and no precaution. It's an interesting stew of content right now that we're in the middle of, which has gotten everybody quite on edge, I would say. And a lot of, I don't know about you, but it creates just a lot of confusion. Should you travel? Should you go to the movies? Should you do all of these things? And yet I see people, as you do every day, walking around, going to work, doing things and business as usual. So it's a confusing time. And we want to be, the media, I think, can do a better time. And perhaps this is a, perhaps this is a moment for people to reevaluate trusted sources, whether they are certain news media organizations or National Geographic that they can look to at a time of confusion for advice and comprehensiveness is something that we should try to evaluate as uh, media entities going forward. Right. And what's the commercial purpose behind those news organizations. I have to say, not to slam the New York Times, but I'm getting like death alerts and test alerts from New York Times on my phone every minute. I don't get that from NPR, but I do subscribe to notifications from NPR. They just do it differently. It's a steadier hand. And I think one that is not driven by only profit. And that's just the reality of it. And that's why I only really listen and look at sources like Nat Geo, but also public radio and publicly funded sources. Yeah, and look, it's commonly referred to, as you know, as clickbait. And there's a reason why people do clickbait, because people take the bait, or a lot of people do. But what it's created now is a stream of headlines which don't really give you any kind of a comprehensive factual basis to make decisions. And even our politics, I would argue, are driven by these tweets and one-off headlines that are not really oftentimes focusing on the very complex issues that are going to face the White House or the Congress or whomever. And I think our society is going through a pretty massive disruptive phase right now that's going to play out for a while longer. So in your role, you probably wear many different hats. Do you get to go on shoots sometimes and actually see the creative process? And I ask because I think people on the outside of these situations think, oh man, he must be like living the dream. And he's like in Antarctica one day and the Gobi Desert another day. And he's like, do you get to actually participate in the art form as well, or at least observe it firsthand? Not as much as I'd like to. I'm very clear just as I was working at Sesame Street that Muppets are the reason why we work here, not me. And our photographers is why we work in National Geographic, not because of administrators who were able to put things together. So I think my job is to provide resources for creative people and to try to promote their work so it reaches the success that it deserves. And I'm very clear on who we work for and of course, I have to report up in, to a company or to shareholders, including the not-for-profit society, who care deeply about our performance, both financially as well as programmatically. But I come in every day 
be excited about working for our photographers and our filmmakers and our journalists because without them, we are nothing. So it's driven all of the things I've worked on through my entire career. How do we get more people to actually appreciate the tradecraft and the art form and all those folks that you just talked about? I think by getting people more exposed to what they do, we have, I would argue, the best in the world, let's say, in photography. They're, if you think of, they're the Super Bowl winners of photography, so to speak. And there's a reason why these people are amazing, because they are amazing. But they weren't always amazing. They all, they all grew up. They all got their first camera. Someone inspired them. They got a break. They got a grant. They got something that, and a mentor, usually. And we've got to make sure that we are continuing to provide opportunities for younger people to be able to to advance, to become, let's say, a National Geographic photographer. And one of the things I'm most proud of, Aaron, is the society's now recent ability to provide grants to young photographers and young filmmakers and young storytellers who are trying to explain and present views of our planet that are solution orientated that in all of its glory and around the world that we're able to do that now. So that's what we've got to continue to be able to do. Yeah. And I think the culture now versus 30, 40 years ago is is more crowdsourced than the office as well. So it's not just top down you saying this is going to be what we're focused on. This is our content, but you're also trying to solicit from the very people on the ground what they think you should be covering, what they think you should be creating for conversation, right? Yeah, for sure. There's always been in the news business this tension between give them what they want versus give them what they need. In the old days, there was an imperial editor who just gave them what they need. Everyone needs to eat their spinach today. And I think what cable news has certainly done is the opposite. It's like give people raw meat of what they want. And we've created, sure, more dialogue, but somewhere there's a balance there. We shouldn't have the imperial editor who's deciding everything on behalf of everyone, but we also have having this food fight around giving people what they, you can't eat snow cones and ice cream every meal or you're not going to live very long. So I think we've got to figure out this balance that is going to make a difference going forward. Right. And you know this better than anybody, but you have whole news organizations and newsrooms now creating content specifically around what their stakeholders are searching. That's the want. But I think you guys live in a different sphere, and you can correct me if I'm wrong. I feel like you guys live in this, give them what's interesting and what's important and what's important to all of our futures collectively. Yes. And we try to take a longer view, as I mentioned at the outset, and to make sure that people have a context. It's a very complex world we live in now from a human geography point of view and a physical geography point of view, if you want to call it that, where this planet is going, the resources on the planet, how humans are acting. We're going to have 10 billion people on this planet, Aaron, by the year 2050. How are we possibly going to teach all of them, provide food for them, provide housing for them, provide energy for them without burning up everything in or on the planet. That's the existential question we are facing. There are solutions to those things if we get our act together. And there's also disaster scenarios if we don't. And I think National Geographic has the capability of providing that context to people. 
goal. And there's a lot of millions of people who are tuning into that, including all those tens of millions on Instagram every day who want to be inspired by our images and our solution-oriented journalism that is going to protect the planet and future generations. What would you say are the top three, four issues then that both National Geographic Partners and the society are focusing on, will continue to focus on over the course of the next year or so? We try to divide our work into segments. So we have a science is obviously the core of what we do. Science and storytelling, super important. Climate, of course, is probably the top of the existential food chain in science, but it's also about space. Wildlife is another one, the extinction crisis, biodiversity around animals and the plant world is real. We could lose a million species in the next 10 years. We want to shine a light on that. We're going to have a big Earth Day, a big Earth Day celebration from the 50th anniversary title out of the Disney and ABC networks and promoting the protection of wildlife as something to educate people about and things they can help work on. History, of course, is a third, and not forgetting the fact that this is the 75th anniversary of World War II this year, and the last remaining veterans of that war are passing away every day. Some 400 Americans who fought in that war are dying every day, and this is going to be pretty much the last turn of the wheel of living veterans of World War II. Being able to talk about that or race issues in America or the changing demographics of refugees around the world, those are super important items. And then travel is really important to us as well and figuring out sustainable travel, curious travel, the difference between travel and tourism to be able to build empathy towards cultures and fill that innate human curiosity that National Geographic can do. So those four quadrants is how we try to center our work from a content point of view across all of our platforms, digital, social, print, and television. And we'll continue to welcome creative ideas both inside the house and from outside contributors. And you, in addition to your current role, We're also very active in other boards. So you're part of the Smithsonian National Museum of Natural History. You're on that board, Economic Club of Washington. You're on the board of Hydric and Struggles. You're an advisor at USC Annenberg School of Communication and Journalism, UC Berkeley Graduate School of Journalism, and Military Child Education Coalition. I'm sure I'm missing something there. You're a busy guy. Those are the current matters of my affection, I guess. Well, so my next question was, where do you get your inspiration from? And it sounds like you're as inspirational as a human being to these organizations as anybody. But so where do you find your inspiration from? Outside of the day job, how is it that you keep going? You have a huge job and it sounds like it's kind of the perfect storm given your career and different things you've done. Where are you looking for inspiration and new ideas outside of the people you're working with day to day? Well, look, I grew up in L.A., and I guess I grew up through the movies and saw the world through the power of storytelling. I've always looked to storytellers to inspire me and continue to do that. And I've been so privileged to be able to work with these incredibly talented people, much more talented than I am, in creating, whether it's Muppeteers connecting with a child or whether it's a public radio host or whether it's a photographer here in National Geographic. These people inspire me every day. 
and the work that they do, I get up in the morning and I never think we're doing enough to support them or I'm not doing enough to support them. That's what gets me into coming into work every day and promoting their work because it can have such a trickle-down effect to inspire so many other people. And I guess that passion just comes from viewing the world and making sure that I live in a better place than I found it, which is what my my wife and my kids also believe in in so many ways. And, and I think if we all thought about our lives that way, we'd be in a much better place. As Jane Goodall likes to say, no one can do everything, but everyone can do something. And that's really what gets me up every morning. I like that. And before we end, feel free. What do you want to shamelessly plug that's coming up? So we're really going to lean into Earth Day as the 50th anniversary and promoting saving wildlife as our hook on that. We believe that saving wildlife is very connected to saving ourselves. And by being able to connect with different wildlife species who are endangered will be highlighted beautifully through Joel Sartori's photo art. We will be able to connect with people who can do something about that directly. Details to follow, but we're super excited about the 50th anniversary birthday and seeing this played across all of the ABC and Disney platforms will be an exposure to National Geographic that it's never had before in its 130 plus year history. So I'm super stoked about that and I hope everyone will jump in to support these collective efforts. Well, Gary, it was so amazing having you on. And I just wanted to personally thank you for everything you do and for your years and decades of public service, not just in the past, but everything you're going to continue to do for all of us in the future. So thank you. Thanks so much, Aaron. And really appreciate the purpose of this podcast. You have a lot of amazingly inspirational people on Keep It Up. Thanks for joining. This has been an episode of Brand on Purpose with Aaron Quickkin, the podcast dedicated to uncovering the untold stories of entrepreneurs and senior leaders who make it their brand's mission to do well by doing good. Special thanks to our amazing team, including the voice you never hear, producer extraordinaire Lindsay Hand, and the always on point associate producer Katrina Walkley, who touches every aspect of this podcast. Learn more about our show at brandonpurpose.com. Follow our Instagram at the Bop Podcast. And learn more about our host at AaronQuicken.com. Mm-hmm.